Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Brian Simon, professor of history at Temple University. He is the author of Everything But the Coffee, Learning About America from Starbucks, and most recently, of The Hamlet Fire, a story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives published by the New Press. Brian Simon, welcome to Working History. Good to be here. Your book, The Hamlet Fire, looks at a 1991 fire that swept through the Imperial Food Products chicken processing plant in Hamlet, North Carolina, to spin out a bigger story about the consequences of quote-unquote cheap. To start us off, can you walk us through what happened on the day of the fire? Yeah, it was the day after Labor Day Uh on 1991, a Tuesday, and one of the machines wasn't working very well and there was a conveyor belt that was down and the maintenance men got there early that morning and replaced a hose on the hydraulic line and they replaced it with the wrong part in part because the owners, um, Emmett and Brad Rowe had refused to buy exactly the right parts. And when they attached that part, it pretty quickly, um, it came undone and began to, um, spew hydraulic fluid all over the place, including mm-hmm. under unguarded burners that were heating um, a frying vat to 375 degrees. Mm-hmm. And quickly the flames and the oil vaporized and an explosion happened, cutting off the plant. So the people in the front of the plant were able to actually pretty easily get out through the front door. But the people mm-hmm. in the back of the plant, many of the processing workers, um, ran to the back and found that the doors were largely locked. And as a result, 25 people died that morning, um, most of them from carbon monoxide poisoning, not from the fi- from the flames, but mm-hmm. from carbon monoxide poisoning. And about 50 got out of the fire. And, and it just um, both revealed um, a whole, you know, pretty quickly journalists um, began to look into it and, and a whole pattern of neglect and deregulation and lack of concern became apparent. And these stories just kept spinning out for the next 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so really mm-hmm. that's the book is, is in a sense, as I call it, a social autopsy borrowing from Eric Kahnenberg of the causes of the fire and the larger consequences of it. Right. And the story of Hamlet in many ways is that Um, or is one of a a typical small American town in terms of its 20th century economic history. And it it went from being a thriving freight rail hub where you have good union jobs, you know, good paying jobs with benefits. And then it kind of collapses into what you dub a rural ghetto. Yeah. So if we could, you know, talk about that a little bit and tease that out, what was the, what was work and life like in Hamlet in what, what might be described as its pre-1960s heyday. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, Hamlet was you know, not the kind of typical version of a southern town. It was a kind of more American version of a town mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Um, blue-collar men, um, largely white men, could get decent jobs that they stayed at for 30 or 40 years on the railroad and protected by the union, um, and the relative scarcity of jobs on the railroad, they were able to buy homes and cars. And as one person pointed out, Hamlet was like a hotbed for backyard swimming pools. And mm-hmm. so it sustained mm-hmm. this kind of almost, um, 
you know, kind of really robust working class life that pulled the working class into the middle class. And as a result, it had pretty good schools. Um, it had a pretty developed downtown shopping area. You know, the kinds of things that we think of and associate with, in many ways, a kind of Midwestern or Northeastern Union town, mm -hmm. the workers there had the benefits of. And, and in fact, they were better off than most of the towns around them. And then when that begins to fall apart in the way that um, it begins to fall apart across America in the 60s and 70s, the town itself enters into this kind of frenzy to attract new employers, each one sort of dubbed the kind of industrial savior. Mm -hmm. But what they did in order to kind of create that was they had to offer them this kind of vulnerable group of workers. And, and one of the kind of, I think, interesting things about that happens in Hamlin, I think a lot of other places, is at the same time that you have this kind of collapse of the central industry, you have a kind of much larger group of people entering the paid workforce, which further kind of depresses the wage levels and creates this Again, kind of easy pickings for employers that want that. And, and I think one of the other stories that's really important is we think about this period of the 70s and 80s as the Rust Belt and a period of deindustrialization. But I think you get something closer to a kind of reindustrialization of the countryside. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, not just a Southern story, as you know. I mean, this is a story taking place literally, you know, as unionized uh, meat packing plants in the Midwest, they sort of lose their union and then a non-union company opens right in that, right in the, that area. But mm -hmm. I think sometimes in the same buildings, right? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. literally in the same buildings. And I, and, and, and I think, you know, across rural America, a process that we kind of often associate with globalizations happening where employers are sort of using this kind of monopoly of local labor to push down wages, to push down conditions and create a kind of vulnerability that, again, gets replicated across rural America, but really is a kind of precursor to kind of what we think of as globalization. Mm -hmm. So by the by the 1980s and into the 1990s, then virtually any work was good work for Hamlet residents, especially for black residents in Hamlet, and in steps Imperial Foods. So a two part question. Um, first, what made Hamlet an attractive place specifically for Imperial, in addition to the fact that you have this, this you know, in, in a lot of ways, desperate working um, uh, pool of workers. And then second, what part did the state government play in bringing companies like Imperial to the state? Right. Um, so Imperial was um, this food processing kind of small scale. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, they're not one of the big players. They're a kind of bit player um, in Moosic, Pennsylvania, they, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they're beginning to um, have to deal with the unionized workforce. OSHA is zeroing in on them in Pennsylvania. And, you know, their costs are going up. Business is getting more expensive. Meanwhile, the kind of center of the chicken industry, which they were involved in, was migrating south and really concentrating what's called the broiler belt, really mm -hmm. those kind of, you know, depleted parts of the rural south. And the owner... As you know, the story goes, is flicking through an industrial kind of magazine and sees an ad for a shuttered ice cream plant in Hamlet. And you know what actually happens after that? I'm not entirely sure because the owners never talked to me. But mm -hmm. I, I suspect they did what any owner would have done. They they went to look at local conditions, and they would have quickly realized that in this county and in this town, unemployment rates were going up. 
the best jobs were leaving, not just the railroad. Actually, the county had managed to attract um, Clark Industries from the Midwest for some high paying and relatively technical jobs. They were about to leave the textile plants, as you well know, um, that had been the anchor of the town next to it, Rockingham, are quickly um, evaporating. Mm -hmm. And so the company understood that it would have pretty good connections to supplies pretty good connections had begun to sell to some small southern um, food companies. And they, so they would have good connections to supplies. They'd have good connection to the companies they were selling to, but their labor costs would be significantly lower if they mm -hmm. moved to Hamlet. Mm -hmm. This wasn't high-skilled work. Um, and they knew there was a surplus of labor there that they wouldn't have to develop a kind of workforce and kind of really deal with them. They could sort of cycle them through as quickly as they can. And that's actually what happens. They really begin kind of concentrating on labor in Hamlet and then build kind of concentric circles out so that people are, um, are driving 20 miles. I mean, that's just how bad the kind of labor situation is there, 20, 25 miles each way um, to work in a chicken plant paying a, a dollar over minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The state of North Carolina um, does not um, – the state of North Carolina during this period under the governorship of Democrat Jim Hunt was actively involved in industrial recruitment. Um, Really, the focus of the, the Hunt administration was industrial recruitment and creating a set of conditions in North Carolina that would be welcoming for industry um, with the kind of mantra that you know, more jobs is better. It doesn't really matter what the jobs are. That said, they don't, they don't recruit Imperial. Um, the owners of Imperial, not that I know of, are ever taken out for a steak dinner or wined and dined. Mm -hmm. But, you know they know what's going on. Um, the brochure for the county essentially articulates that, you know, there'll be limited regulation, that there's a, you know, pliable and tractable labor source and plenty of them. And the county commissioners and the local chamber of commerce who the Rose would eventually spurn were, were happy to tell them about the virtues of the place. And, you know, that didn't entail its union past or, it's long commitment to high skilled, high wage labor. Mm -hmm. The story of Hamlet then is, you know, part cheap labor, but it's also part cheap food, as you, you know, as you discuss in the book. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how the, the story of Hamlet and Imperial Foods is intimately tied to the industrialization of the process of raising poultry. In, right. uh, in the book, you talk about, 1992 is this watershed moment in the history of American eating when the per capita chicken consumption surpasses per capita beef consumption in the United States for the first time, um, which I thought was really interesting because you always hear, you know, for instance, um, you know, the 1920 census is the first time that, you know, there's more people identified as living in urban versus rural areas. And it kind of <laughs> struck me as one of those kinds of moments. Right. So. Right. One of the main reasons for this shift, as you point out, was simple economics, right? Chicken had become right. incredibly cheap, an incredibly cheap source of protein. So can you talk a little bit about how chicken became so cheap? Yeah, I mean, it's gross in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, this is part of the point, right? And for me, the entry point into this story was actually the, the, the food they made. They made mm -hmm. um, chicken tenders, at, uh, Imperial made chicken tenders that it sold to Shoney's and to Long John Silver's and Red Lobster. And... Um, Essentially, chicken was one of the great industrial success stories of the post-war period, and it resulted from a couple streams. One was the intensification of the production of chicken, um, chicken coops um, 
animal factories really are, are kind of sprouting up across the South that are processing way more chickens per unit. Um, they're figuring out how to raise them on less food and less cost. So that's one. The second is the industrialization of the bird itself. Mm-hmm. Through genetics, through antibiotics, um, the birds um, are getting fatter and fatter. And, and, you know, essentially their breasts are getting bigger and bigger because of the American preference for white meat. So big that many of them can't stand up. Their, their spindly legs can't hold the size of their huge breasts. But again, this is going to lower the cost of production. And, and then lastly, um, there's a kind of tremendous consolidation of the industry during this period. And this is really the emergence of Tyson, Purdue, and Gold. Um, crest is like these mm-hmm. just massive companies that essentially are both horizontally and vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. And all of those together leads to um, a tremendous reduction in the kind of cost of the price of chicken. So that chicken, which um, actually was kind of rare um, in the 1920s, it cost as much as lobster, costs a fraction of what beef costs. The interesting thing about this is the cost is important because it happens right as wages go down. Right. Yeah. You know, overall wages are declining across America. So the fact that there's this cheaper source of protein and, and as Americans can't, you know, have trouble like, you know, a lot of people around the world imagining a meal without meat at the center of it, chicken just becomes the affordable option. Now, the problem for chicken is that chicken doesn't have the variety of cuts. It doesn't have the fat. It doesn't have, you know, that the taste that sort of pork or beef have. And so almost at this watershed moment, chicken surpasses beef as the number one source of meat-based protein. Chicken marketers and chicken producers start to complain about what they call chicken fatigue. Mm-hmm. People get tired of eating it. And so immediately enters in these product developers who begin to try and come up with chicken products that have a more intense a more addictive taste to them. And the real innovation really is the chicken nugget. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so not long after chicken replaces beef, half of all the chicken consumed in the United States is fried. Mm -hmm. And so where chicken had, part of the other part of chicken's story, I should, I I, I omitted and I shouldn't have is, there's a little bit of a health concern here. This is the period when um, there's kind of widely publicized concerns with red meat. I don't think that is as important as the price, but people are able to see their chicken choices as a healthier choice. But mm-hmm. but quickly, chicken itself becomes a really dangerous food and part of the larger problem of the paradox of plenty where people are getting too much of the wrong kind of calories, particularly the poor who have to rely on cheap foodstuffs. And those cheap foodstuffs, particularly the chicken-based ones themselves, are unhealthy um, by the time that the fire breaks out. Right. And, and in a lot of ways, there's this perverse economic process at work where folks like those who work the line at Imperial churning out this cheap double and triple processed chicken are in a position of only being able to afford to put that kind of food onto their tables, right? So what? let's talk a little bit more about those workers, uh, maybe not individually unless, you know, unless you want to, right. um, but more so just in terms of, um, you know, what was their pay like? What were their, what was the work, what were the working conditions like for, you know, the people that worked the line at Imperial? Yeah, I've come to believe that there is a dividing line of work in the United States and um, wages is part of it, right? Safety conditions is part of it. 
But I kind of think that the right to go to the bathroom when you want to is the kind of dividing line in contemporary work. Right. And um, Imperial was the kind of place where people did not control their own time when they were in the plan and literally, you know, had to ask to go to the bathroom. Um, some women recall wearing kind of adult diapers because they couldn't control themselves. And if they mm -hmm. asked too many times, they would be humiliated and demeaned by the bosses. And all of this is to say that, that this is a kind of job that no one would see as anything other than a compromise to kind of put food on your table and um, kind of get by. And, and that, that's the kind of job it was. And the mm -hmm. kind of people who relied on it were the kind of people who were in a position where that was the kind of job they had to take. Right. And in Hamlet, and in many parts of the South at this point, many of the people who were in this position were single black women. Um, you know, a whole set of circumstances had made them particularly vulnerable. And that in many ways is who the Rose preyed on, literally recruiting, um, using the local employment bureau to recruit workers. And so about 75% of the line workers, the people processing the chicken, um, were African-American women. The other, um, almost everybody on the line was women. And then men, mostly white, with some African-Americans would do the support jobs, all from you know the highest paid jobs, which were maintenance, to the lowest paid jobs, and what they were basically kind of janitors and cleaning up. Mm -hmm. um, the work itself entailed, um, the chicken was already, this was not a dissembly plant, so the mm -hmm. chicken was already dissembled when it got there. They, they bought already processed frozen chicken breast and then they um, used the line before they did what was called in the industry further processing so it didn't you know it could be scraping off gobs of fat from those chicken breasts it could be cutting those chicken breasts it could be loading the fryer unloading the fryer repacking plants and um putting them in boxes um mm -hmm. the work was depending on where you worked always hot or always cold mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. Many of the people who worked in the plant, not surprisingly, suffered from carpal tunnel syndrome, from bad backs, from, you know, sore um, limbs and joints. And, um, you know, what was good about it, if it was good about it, is the plant was in such bad shape and such need of repair that it broke down often, right. giving workers a break. And um, even the um, foreman realized pretty soon that this was a relatively good you know, that, that there was an advantage to this, that, that it let people rest their hands and arms. And one of the kind of details that sticks out for me, and I think maybe as a last description for the job, an, any number um, of the workers who were found dead in the plant um, when the medical examiners went through what was on their persons found um, tins of Excedrin and Tylenol. Oh, wow. um, and so that so that they were you know involved in a in a kind of just trying to keep their bodies together mm -hmm. um, to do this work to support their families um, because they they didn't have much of a choice. Right. Why didn't they try to organize a union or file complaints about management, uh, particularly in retrospect in regards to the safety violations? It's interesting you ask that. You know, some of the people who worked in the plant are embarrassed by that question. Uh -huh. In a sense. When that question gets asked, they feel like they somehow, you know, let themselves and the people around them down. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, this, this was a plant that was going to be hard to organize to begin with. Um, 
And I think it works on a couple of levels, right? There weren't a lot of unions organizing in the South at the time, mm-hmm. processing plant workers. Like a lot of industries that, had, that rely on low skill and relatively easy to replace workers in a competitive industry, that was a hard industry to organize. But, you know, they never really saw an organizer. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing. The second thing was, it's not like the people who worked there were, were didn't know that they were working in unsafe conditions and didn't know that their bosses didn't respect their labor. But they were also afraid, and they often disciplined each other against complaining because they were afraid that the plant would leave. Mm-hmm. That um, And so, well, the owners sought a certain kind of silence, a certain kind of distance from regulation. The workers themselves were not particularly eager to complain for fear of losing the plant. I think third was, there was a kind of interesting, I mean, I think there's a larger sense that the state, that the government didn't work for them, mm-hmm. and that there, they, they had very little faith in government as a solution. Um, it didn't seem to be working very well for them. Mm-hmm. And then the, the evidence most immediately in front of them was at best ambivalent ev- evidence, and that is that, um, the USDA came into the plant all the time to inspect the meat, but they overlooked the working conditions. Right. And a couple of workers reported, you know, remember going up to the USDA people and say, look, you know, it's too hot in here. It's the doors are locked. And the USDA people said, well, hey, that's not my job. Right. So the most immediate source of authority to them kind of didn't seem like a source of authority that was on their side. And, and I'll add one last just kind of anecdotal thing. There, apparently there was an OSHA phone number in the plant, but it was covered up by something else. Okay. So, and, and you know this from reading the book, but this is one of the like give, you know, kind of key details. It wasn't like OSHA was going to arrive there anyways. Right. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, where was OSHA, right? There was such an absence of regulation and oversight. What was going on in that regard that no no inspectors would show up at the plant and no one would expect them to ever to? Yeah, so OSHA, when the initial law in a, in a kind of, you know, classic Nixon era agreement um, puts in place what seems like a really kind of fundamental change in, in, the, in workplace safety legislation um, allows for the states to form their own OSHA programs. In the case of North Carolina, they jumped at that opportunity to essentially kind of form a a less stringent OSHA program. And by the time of the fire, they had 30 percent, 40 percent of the number of inspectors that the number of factories in the state mandated. And that meant at that existing rate, it would have taken them 70 years to inspect every plant in the state. Yeah. So OSHA was not a formidable kind of um, regulatory agent. And in fact, because everyone pretty much knew OSHA wasn't going to come, you know, in the Rose case, kind of investing in safety would have been giving your competitors an advantage. And they were involved in a just race to the bottom with the company, you know, these small companies they were competing against. And so they had their own financial problems, but essentially they just let the equipment kind of go to waste because they kind of knew they were never going to get inspected. And I don't, you know, I don't think that they're really worried about OSHA um, when they locked the doors. And in fact, they locked the doors in an agreement with the USDA to keep the flies out. Mm, right. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't think OSHA will, at that point was an effective deterrent. And, and it was one of these things that the law itself was always flawed. Um, and. 
the expectation that worker safety was going to be sort of, uh, you know, fall under its umbrella was a kind of false faith that unions kept trying to hold the federal government to, but there was never enough support for an aggressive enough inspectorate and to, you know, encourage these competitive industries to really abide by the law. One last OSHA story, um, and, and this is probably indicative of it. At one point, uh, a Hamlet worker does write to OSHA, and OSHA writes back to the plant. It, it was about over maggots um, and other kind of, you know, stuff in the plant and the conditions of the bathrooms. They essentially write back to the plant and say, oh, someone said that the conditions are poor. And the superintendent writes back a snarky letter and says, well, you're wrong. And that was the end. Oh, OK. And, and, and so and. And just added to that, just to sort of add to this kind of like levels of kind of neglect, when Imperial moved, somehow the fact that it had numerous violations on it through the federally sponsored OSHA in Pennsylvania never traveled with the company to North Carolina. So it wasn't like Pennsylvania or the federal OSHA told the North Carolina Department of Labor, look, you have a repeat offender in your midst now. Right. So what was the aftermath of the fire it seems you know that all of these you know all of these violations sort of you know it was a it was a perfect storm on that you know on that day that the fire happened so what is the what's the aftermath um was anyone held accountable what happens to the community and particularly the survivors Uh, you know it seems like there was you know you have this this traumatic event but the, the you know the ripple effects of it just go on and on and on and on and on yeah um that certainly is the way I portray it at the end of the book. And, and to me, some of the most moving stories and the most painful were the ones at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple outcomes. One, there's a, a flurry of outrage. There's, there, I mean, there's some amazing journalism about the fire. The Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer just send great reporters who write great stuff about the story. And that creates a, a kind of outrage in the state of North Carolina. There's uh, the commission, the labor commissioners ousted from office when the legislature reconvenes the next spring, a kind of slew of reforms are passed that, you know, suggest some um, kind of changes. But that's the first point is, well, these changes happen in the in laws and some measures happen. There's not the dramatic change of conversation and not the dramatic sort of rethinking of the role of the state and of the social contract that you see happening, for instance, after the Triangle Factory in 1911 mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so that within a couple of years, many politicians in the state on both sides of the aisle are recommending more industry. One lawmaker, in fact, in the state um, begins to a campaign against OSHA and um, attacking its so-called Gestapo tactics. So that kind of fundamental reordering of priorities doesn't happen. In Hamlet itself, um, literally on the day of the fire, lawyers descend on the town. And um, at one point, there's there so many lawyers wandering the halls of the hospital trying to sign up um, the families of victims and the families of survivors that the police have to come and keep them out of the building. And this leads to a whole set of legal issues um, in the aftermath. Um, And and in many ways, um, you know, people get paid. um, There's disbursements in the tens of millions of dollars, but nobody nobody gets rich. And in many ways, the distrust that is sort of fed by these legal proceedings adds to one of the kind of crucial dynamics in the post-fire world. And that is 
of the survivors suffering hugely from PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, Their kind of emotional trauma that they feel physically doesn't end for many of them to this day. And, And one of the real symbols of that is that the plant, which is located in, in really in the heart of, um, or at least one of the black neighborhoods in Hamlet, a town pretty much still divided racially in 1991, remains up until 10, 11 years after the fire because mm-hmm. nobody's willing to pay to take it down. Yet again, the echoes of cheap. And so mm-hmm. the victims of the fire are kind of daily sort of traumatized by the fire that they can't shake. The last, um, if there's a kind of, you know, one other denouement story is, is that the owner of the plant, Emmett Rowe, is um, indicted on 25 counts of involuntary manslaughter. So is his son, Brad Rowe, who was in the plant that day, and the general manager of the plant, who is actually his son-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, Emmett Rowe pleads out and is given a 19-year sentence. He'll serve four and a half years. He's fined $800,000 by the State Department of Labor. He doesn't pay a dime of it. He declares bankruptcy right mm-hmm. away. But, mm-hmm. but the light sentence is also um, a really kind of revealing and important story. When his lawyer went to go see the DA, the DA let him know that he didn't much value the lives of the people in the plant. He accused them of stealing chickens and being, you know, um, you know, maybe or maybe not used a racial epithet to describe the majority of the people in the plant and, and basically said, look, their lives weren't worth that much. And so he was willing to strike a pretty lenient plea deal with um, the owner of the plant who had ordered those doors shut. Because if the doors hadn't been shut, you know, there would have been there might have been victims and deaths. But, I mean, it, it, it wouldn't have been in the numbers that we saw and, mm-hmm. and the trauma that was kind of laid to bear on that town and on those people wouldn't have taken place. And um, the fact that their lives, and you know, were worth so little, um, underscored, I think, what they had long felt and underscored um, really why the plan had come there to begin with. Um, their lives were, were deemed not to matter very much. Right. You close out the book by highlighting the historical connections between industrial accidents, um, if we want to call them that, like right. the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which you had mentioned, uh, the Hamlet fire, the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh, another poultry processing fire, uh, factory fire in China, which uh, was in, in 2013. So given these connections, um, what is the big takeaway that you want for readers of this book? Well, I mean, the takeaway in part is that these are all connected. And they're all connected by a faith in cheap. The idea that if you know if we create more jobs and cheaper products, that's a meaningful social bargain. Mm-hmm. But that bargain of cheap, that kind of economy of cheap, that structure of cheap, produces one other thing, and that is, in a sense, an oversurplus of hiding its real costs. Mm-hmm. And those real costs are in environmental damage. Those real costs are in... Um, kind of food that is unhealthy and, and can make you sick, both in the long term and the short term, and in what it does to individual workers' lives. And um, I think what I want to highlight is the cost of this system of cheap and the fact that what we pay for things isn't really what they cost for us. Mm-hmm. 
and that a fairer society might mandate that we just all pay a little bit more. And, and the second thing is the connection points to the fact that this is part of a system. These aren't one-offs. These aren't you know isolated episodes. They're part of a system of chief that depends on a kind of repression of knowledge, both about what's in the food, but in about the circumstances that leads to kind of accidents. And if we don't see them as connected, we see them as one-offs. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I link them together to kind of highlight, you know, something I hope I highlight throughout the book, the systematic nature of cheap. Well, Brian Simon, congratulations on another great book, uh, one, of, one of several that you've written. Uh, and thank you for talking about it uh, with us on this episode of Working History. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. Thanks again to Brian Simon, author of the new book, The Hamlet Fire, The Story of Cheap Food, Cheap Government, and Cheap Lives, published by The New Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. <laughs> <laughs>